Hello, I'm Alina. Hello, I'm Janine. We're two sisters, two PhDs, relentlessly curious about too many things. This is Sister Doctor Squared. Hello everyone, welcome to episode 9 of Sister Doctor Squared. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. How are you, Janine? I'm good. Good to hear you are hopefully as excited as I am about this one. This is an important one and we're also going to have a bit of fun as always. Yes, and as always, we would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording this episode and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Yes, thank you, Janine. Now, Today's episode, we are talking about antibiotics and antibiotic resistance. So why are we talking about this topic? Well, it's always been a bit of a bugbear of mine in the public health space. And recently, Janine, as you know, I had myself a bit of a health issue and had to see a doctor and I was immediately offered antibiotics without any confirmation of what the issue was and without me even indicating that I had any interest in antibiotics, which I didn't. Mm. And I should say this was not my regular GP who is fabulous. This was someone else who I had to see because I couldn't get in to see my regular GP. Yes. And I was so shocked at just the difference in approach there. And it reminded me how problematic this issue is. And so we just had to do an episode on it. Yes. You called me straight away going, guess what just happened? And yeah, we thought, okay, we need to talk about this. Oh, it was all wrong. And even just the language was, I'm going to start you on a course of antibiotics. Mm. And I thought, are you? I think <laughs> I have a say in this. <laughs> but that's, that's a whole separate issue. Don't let me go off onto that tangent. So here we are, antibiotic resistance. Janine, tell us what you have been learning about. Okay, so I have found a paper which is a narrative review, so a big review consolidating lots of past research, and the title is Evidence of Antibiotic Resistance from Population-Based Studies, and it's by Gia Kamini and colleagues, and it was published this year in 2021. And before I get into the guts of the paper, I thought it's important, let's just take a moment to make sure everyone's on the same page when it comes to antibiotics and what is antibiotic resistance generally. So the first antibiotic was penicillin and that was discovered by Alexander Fleming in 1928. And now this was a total game changer for humanity. Up until that time, bacterial infections had been such a significant scourge of humanity. You know, a simple skin infection could be life and death in many cases. So now for the first time, we have an effective treatment against infection in the form of penicillin. And the penicillin was originally isolated from a group of penicillin moulds, which is a type of fungus, as these organisms already had their own inherent ability to kill or slow down bacteria. So the discovery of penicillin is fascinating in itself. I'd encourage people to go and look into that if they're interested. Yeah. It really Coming is from a fungus. Cool. Yeah, but so what humans have done is capitalise on that ability of that fungus to kill or slow down bacteria and isolate the compounds responsible. And that is what antibiotics are. 
So let's fast forward to today. So obviously we still have antibiotics. They're still incredibly important and life-saving medications, but sadly, a new threat has emerged and that is antibiotic resistance, which is the focus of what we want to talk about here. So what is this? This is a situation where bacterial organisms that are responsible for some infection stop responding to antibiotic treatment. Why? Because they have become resistant or immune to the effects of it. So how does this happen? All organisms change over time due to random evolutionary change. And this can be caused by mutation, natural selection. And what happens is that if an organism develops a beneficial mutation, this organism may survive to reproduce more than its neighbours or competitors, go on to reproduce more. So if we consider this bacteria plus antibiotic scenario... Remember that bacteria are single-celled organisms, and if just one of these cells develops a mutation randomly that enables it to survive better in the face of the antibiotic, it will go on to survive more than its neighbours. And the really important thing to recognise is that bacteria reproduce incredibly quickly. So hopefully you can see that this could cause evolutionary change to occur rapidly. And in fact, we can see evolution happening in lab situations when studying bacteria and other types of organisms that reproduce very quickly. Wow. And it's important to point out that let's say a bacteria becomes immune to a particular antibiotic. You might think, well, I'll just try a different antibiotic. But we're now getting to the point where there are what we call multi-resistant strains. And these are strains of bacteria that are starting to become immune to the whole suite of antibiotics that we have. So Mm. you may think, okay, we'll we'll just go and discover some more antibiotics. But that's not going to solve the issue either because the bacteria will still develop resistance to whatever new antibiotic is presented to them. And the rate of... So really you're just making the problem worse. Yes. And and the, the rate of development of new antibiotics is quite slow. It's it's a slow process. So really we need to realise that what we have now is really precious and we need to be managing it carefully. So what you're saying is the rate at which we are developing new antibiotics is much slower than the rate at which bacteria are changing into resistant strains. Yes, and even if we do get a a new class of antibiotics, the bacteria will eventually evolve resistance to them anyway. Yes. So have a finite, effective lifespan, I guess. Yeah. So, and what are the implications of this? Well, if you are unlucky enough to have an antibiotic-resistant infection, you will almost certainly be in hospital for a lot longer than you would have otherwise. Simple infections can turn nasty pretty quickly and there's a higher risk of death. So it's quite terrifying. Mm. In the the paper that I'm going to cover a bit later on, they mentioned that in Europe, 33,000 people each year die from antibiotic-resistant bacterial infections. Mm. Terrifying. Yes. So in 2015, the World Health Assembly launched a global action plan to try and tackle this issue. And a quote from the paper that I wanted to read out was, antibiotic resistance could cause approximately 10 million deaths by 2050 unless global action is taken. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And the authors of the paper outlined that the costs of taking action are not cheap. It would be around $4 billion to do what is necessary, which is a lot of money. However, they've also been able to calculate the cost of not tackling the issue. And there we're looking at more like $100 trillion. 
Yeah, so that's an easy decision. <laughs> it is. The cost benefit's pretty clear there, I think. <laughs> so, yes, a convincing argument why we really need to be tackling this issue. It's going to cost a lot more money and lives if we don't. So, let's just do a quick recap. Bacteria will change over time, and this is totally natural. This is evolution that's occurring in all organisms. We expect this to happen. And we expect that that will be happening in the face of antibiotic exposure. However, what we are talking about here is that this resistance to the antibiotics is occurring much, much faster than what we would expect to see just naturally. And so this paper is really trying to consolidate why is it happening so much faster and what should we do about it? It is really crucial to understand that antibiotics only kill bacteria. They do not work against fungal infections. They do not work against viral infections or any other type of infection. So they absolutely will not help you if you have a virus like the common cold, which I think is a big misconception out there. Absolutely. And this really gets at one of the key reasons why the antibiotic resistance is evolving so fast, and that is prescribing antibiotics when it is totally inappropriate. So this kind of misuse is a really big contributor Let's think of it this way. Every single time a single bacteria or a colony of bacteria are exposed to antibiotics, we're giving them a chance to evolve in response to them. Mm. This is what people need to keep in their heads. Every time they're exposed, they're just giving them another potential opportunity to evolve some resistance, right? Yes. So we want to minimise the exposure whenever possible. Other issues can be that the dose may be higher than necessary, that they may be prescribed too frequently that they may be prescribed for too long a time period for each single dose. And also the big issue of self-prescription, where someone is actually asking a doctor for them. Yes, I'll be talking a little bit about that later on. And another important point is just not having adequate hygiene. I think we've all learned a lot about the importance of that with coronavirus. When it comes to antibiotic resistance, it is an issue as well because if you happen to have some resistant bacteria on your body and you're not adequately cleaning, it's just increasing the spread of those particular strains as well. Mm, That's right. So hopefully it's clear that you can see that all of these scenarios, we're just giving the bacteria even more of a chance to evolve in response to the exposure to the antibiotics. And another issue is that diagnostic techniques can be a bit slow. So let's say you've gone to the doctor and you are obviously unwell. It would be really great if we could do some sort of test or culture to work out what whether there is a bacterial issue going on or not. Yeah, and, a point of care test right then and there. Yeah, and now look, that if we could get that result back really fast, that would be great. But sometimes it may take a day or two and... Often the situation is that the patient is wanting to start something then and there or the doctor is concerned and wanting them to start something then and there. So perhaps being given something and then a few days later find out, oh, actually it was a virus and you didn't need to take them. So again, we've just given that whatever bacteria were naturally in your body the chance to potentially develop more resistance. Now, there are some other contributing factors that may not be immediately obvious and that is their meat production industry. This industry often uses antibiotics a lot to treat infections in livestock and sometimes may even be using them preventatively. So that is before the animals even have an infection. That's very problematic. It is. There's also lots of research to show that the antibiotic resistant bacteria can make their way into the soil and the water supply. 
So now we're seeing that these resistance strains, we can imagine they're in healthcare settings, so hospitals, we can imagine them in aged care facilities, but also general community and even the environment and water supply. Dairy. So the using antibiotics to stimulate growth of farm animals is illegal in some settings. Mm. So that's a positive step. Yes, and there's certainly a lot of work happening in this space to learn more about this and try and minimise it. So it's good to hear that those steps are being taken in some settings. But some other scary stats from the paper include that one retrospective analysis in England found that up to 53% of prescriptions for antibiotics were totally inappropriate. Mm. That, that's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. And another study in Italy showed that around two-thirds of patients were prescribed antibiotics inappropriately. So again, very high numbers there. And an example that they point out in the paper is conjunctivitis. And so they were interested in looking at how many people who presented with conjunctivitis were given antibiotics, and it was 60% when most of those cases turned out to be viral. And we do know that even if it is a bacterial conjunctivitis, most cases will actually clear up by themselves and the antibiotics is not really necessary. Yeah. So really, 60% being given them when only a very small proportion probably needed them. And another study that was done in Jordan showed that one-third of antibiotic prescriptions were the result of the patient asking for them or the pharmacist requesting them. And it sounded like, in some cases, these can be given over-the-counter without a doctor's prescription. And 19% of antibiotics given over-the-counter were for people who ended up having viruses. So, Irene, really, reading all these papers, I have a pretty good appreciation for this situation, but I developed more of an appreciation and just was really feeling a lot more terrified after than before. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for sharing your terror with us. Yes. Yes. I think being in the public health space, I'm aware of this issue and I'm really pleased that we're doing this episode and hopefully getting some of that knowledge out there. Totally. And like you said, Janine, we want to stress the point that antibiotics are wonderful drugs. Yeah. We absolutely need antibiotics. They save many, many lives. It's just when you have too much of a good thing mm. and that's the issue here. They're being overused yes. and there's really dire unintended consequences of that. Yes. There is an emerging strategy of what's called antibiotic de-escalation. That is a key to overcoming these issues. So what does that look like? Well, firstly, hopefully it's becoming clear that we need to be prescribing only when appropriate. So my summary of that point would be prescribe only when it's very clearly a bacterial issue and that it is a serious issue, or in an emergency situation where there is no time to potentially wait for results. And if it's not an emergency, then we should be doing more diagnostic tests and waiting for the results, so maybe doing some cultures. And with that culture, we can even determine the exact strains of bacteria that are present and therefore which antibiotics are going to be effective and not waste time trying lots of different things. Right, so a really targeted treatment. Yeah, there is benefit to waiting. But, you know, of course, there are bacterial strains like golden staph that are multi-resistant and we don't really have anything that will kill them, which is, again, very terrifying. Mm. Uh, so another recommendation is to try and use what's called narrow-spectrum agents first. This just means a class of antibiotics that will target 
particular strains, and that is in comparison to what we call a broad-spectrum antibiotic, which kind of will try and kill everything. So let's, let's try and go for the narrow ones first and see if that's enough and only really go up to the broad, heavy-handed antibiotics if necessary. And another really interesting point is that newer studies are suggesting that shorter durations of antibiotics are probably effective in many situations. And now anyone who's had antibiotics knows when you're prescribed them, you're always told you need to completely finish this dose even if you are feeling better. So you often might need to take them for up to two weeks sometimes or longer. So it's sort of a revision of that sort of idea. An example they're giving here is that in many cases when someone is to have significant surgery, they are given antibiotics preventatively. So they're given them during surgery or just as they're waking up to try and prevent any infection. And that is, we're starting to think that's probably a really bad idea. Or if we do need to do that, a very short dose is probably better than being on it for a long dose after surgery. And so what the paper really calls for are antibiotic stewardship programs and global surveillance networks. So this would look like global oversight of this issue, but also very well-informed policy and individuals that are champions at the local level that understand this issue and are making very well-informed decisions to try and tackle this issue from the local level all the way up to the whole globe. So that wraps up my paper. As I said, it was a review paper of this issue, but I did want to make two final points, which uh, I'm hoping that anyone who didn't know the seriousness of this issue is feeling a little bit more informed about it now. But even if you're not convinced that this is a problem for you as an individual, consider this. If you take antibiotics, even if they are legitimately needed, the diversity of bacteria in your gut will be dramatically changed and the diversity will be reduced. And this is actually a very bad thing for your health and in particular your digestive system and your immune system. And more recent research is even showing there can be implications for your mental health and your mood. So things like depression and anxiety can be associated with your gut bacteria. And it can take up to four years for your gut bacteria to get back to what was normal for you. Up to four years. Yes. So wow, will, that is significant. Yes. So I will pop a link up to the paper that I'm referring to around that point because it's pretty interesting. Absolutely. And so, as you said, it really is a public health issue, but also an issue for your own individual health in the here and now. Yeah. So, Alina, what did you read about? Okay, so... Janine, what do healthcare workers think when it comes to antibiotics? Mm. These are the people prescribing them, dispensing them, and sometimes administering them, so giving them to patients. Well, there was a huge survey of healthcare workers across 30 countries in Europe to look at this, and it has some really interesting findings. So this study was done in 2019 and published in early 2021, the lead author is Diane Ashiru-Oredup, who is very active in this space, and this is a really big international collaboration, as you can imagine. Mm. So they surveyed over 18,000 health professionals. Wow. To look at, mm, it's a lot of people, a lot of work. 
to look at their knowledge, attitudes and behaviours when it comes to antibiotics and antibiotic resistance. And the study has a fairly good representation of healthcare workers across these 30 countries and across the main healthcare worker groups that prescribe and dispense and administer antibiotics. So they had doctors, nurses, pharmacists, midwives, dentists, allied health workers, and others working in hospitals and other settings. Wow, that's great. Absolutely. Hats off to this group. So this was a fairly large survey, and I'm just going to pull out some of the findings that stood out the most to me. And if you're interested in reading more, this is an open access paper, so you can go ahead and do that. Yay for open access. So the good news is that the overwhelming majority, 96% of the healthcare workers surveyed, agreed that they knew what antibiotic resistance was. Okay, good. And 80% said that they knew enough about antibiotic resistance to use antibiotics appropriately in their practice. Mm -hmm. Now, these are the overall results, but it did vary a lot across countries and across different healthcare worker groups. And in some cases, that agreement was much lower. Now, there were a handful of true or false knowledge questions in the survey. Mm -hmm. So as I go through whether these healthcare workers got the true-false questions right or not, I thought you could have a go, Janine. Oh, oh, okay. (laughs) And listeners and squares, you can feel free to play along too. So there's just seven true-false questions. Right. Janine, are you ready? Yes. This is going going to be a big test for my knowledge. (laughs) Absolutely. I'm going to say the question, just maybe just wait a little, a few moments so we can... Okay. People playing along at home can have a think as well. Yeah. And then give me your answer. Not too quick off the buzzer. Okay. That's right. Okay. So, number one, Janine, true or false? I'm nervous. (laughs) (laughs) Antibiotics are effective against viruses. Is that an adequate pause time? I think that was quite adequate, yes. I would say that is false, Alina. That is correct, oh, Janine. you. And we discussed this earlier in the podcast. I so did if you say didn't that just get before. get that right at home, then you're not listening. <laughs> Go back to the start of the episode. <laughs> really important stuff. Okay, so yes, that is correct. False. And 98% of the healthcare workers said the same thing. 2% think that they are... It's a bit oh, of a problem. Oh, no. Okay, so number two, and this is kind of a similar question, Janine. Antibiotics okay. are effective against cold and flu. False again. Correct. And 97% also agreed with false. I want that number to be 100% though, Alina. It should be. I think it really should be. These are healthcare workers. Okay, so yes, 97% agreed false. And as we said, antibiotics are not effective against viruses and cold and flu are viruses. That's right. So flu is, of course, influenza and cold. It can be different viruses, but most commonly the rhinovirus. Okay, number three, true or false, taking antibiotics has side effects such as diarrhoea, colitis and allergies. That's true. That's correct. Because it's messing around with the gut bacteria. (laughs) Absolutely. As for any medication, there can be side effects. And that disruption to your gut bacteria that Janine talked about is one of them potentially, which can affect your immunity and mood and etc. 
So true is the correct answer, and 97% mm-hmm. of the healthcare workers said true. Okay. All right, number four, true or false, unnecessary use of antibiotics makes them become ineffective, i.e. they don't work. Yes, true. That's correct. (laughs) That's what we've been talking about. It is a big driver of (laughs) antibiotic resistance. So 94% agreed Mm. with true. Okay. All right, so the next three are going to get a little bit harder. Are you ready? I was starting to. I was starting to feel okay, but now you've made me feel nervous again. All right. Oh no. Okay. Was that like a nocebo effect potentially? <laughs> okay. Number five. True or false? Healthy people can carry antibiotic-resistant bacteria. That would be true. Correct. Yes. Of course. Anybody can. That's right. As for many infections, they can be in your system without causing any Mm. symptoms. And we call this asymptomatic infection, which is a term I'm sure everybody is very well familiar with now. And so 88% agreed Mm. with true. So it's still high, but we're dropping down a little bit. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Indeed. Mm. All right, number six antibiotic resistant bacteria can spread from person to person. True. That is correct. Yes, of course. Again, antibiotic resistance is a really serious problem. Mm. And 87% mm. agree with true. Okay. All right, last question. Every person treated with antibiotics is at an increased risk of antibiotic-resistant infection. I would say true. That is correct. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Excellent work, Janine. Alina, those you questions got... have just made me more terrified of this problem. <laughs> well, you got all seven correct. So now, yeah. look, how did the healthcare workers go with this last one? Mm. 75% oh, really? said true. So this was the lowest proportion yeah. out of all the seven questions. That's so fascinating. That gives a real insight into inappropriate prescriptions as well, doesn't it? It does. And so, yeah, this is why it's so important to think very carefully about whether you really need to take antibiotics. Mm. All right, so thanks for playing along with that, Janine. You did extremely well, 100%. Gold yes. star. That You've was, actually that done was... better than a lot of the people, <laughs> the healthcare workers in this study. That was equally, I was a little nervous, but it was also fun because you know I love trivia. Oh, she loves a quiz. <laughs> so overall, how did the healthcare workers go? So as as I've been through, mostly they got them right. Mm. And again, the responses varied across countries and different healthcare worker groups. Now, Mm. 58% overall got all seven questions correct. That's not very good. I agree. (laughs) And you have just got all seven correct without actually being a healthcare worker yourself, Janine. (laughs) So, yes, 58% got all seven correct and it was those last few questions around antibiotic resistance where they were tripped up a little bit, Mm, as we saw. Now, I pulled out some other really interesting findings from this survey. So 65% of these healthcare workers had prescribed, dispensed or given antibiotics just in the week before they did the survey. Yep. And of those, around half, 55%, gave their patients advice about careful use of antibiotics and how to look after their infections. Yeah. And only 17% gave any written information, like leaflets. Mm -hmm. 
Now, when I've been a patient, I certainly have never been offered any written information about antibiotics when they've been offered to me. Have you? No, never. (laughs) Well, it does seem quite rare. Now, so why is this? Well, in this survey, the reasons that the healthcare workers gave was that they don't have the resources, Mm -hmm. they don't have time, Mm -hmm. or the patients they see are not interested Okay. And I think, as you talked about, Janine, a lot of patients do just want antibiotics. Yeah. Don't, there's not enough public awareness about when they're appropriate to use and whether they're likely to be helpful. Mm. So some patients have an expectation of antibiotics, and I'll talk a little bit more on that in a moment. Now, this was really interesting. So when looking at just those who were prescribers of medicines, Mm -hmm. which was about 6,500 of the survey respondents, 90% agreed that they played a key role in controlling antibiotic resistance and that they thought about antibiotic resistance when caring for their patients. Okay. Good. But still... Almost a third said that they would have preferred not to have prescribed an antibiotic at least once in the week before they did the survey, but they did so anyway. Really? Why was this? Mm. Well, the most common reason was fear that the patient's condition might get worse without antibiotics. Mm -hmm. Other reasons included that they weren't sure what the diagnosis was. Mm -hmm. So as we've been talking about, we know it's probably an infection, but what type of an infection? Maybe it could be bacterial. Another reason was that they felt they didn't have time to explain to patients why antibiotics wouldn't be the best course of action. So, so this time factor coming up again. Oh, okay. So they, they thought it's not appropriate, but I don't really have time to explain that. So I'll just placate the patient by giving them the prescription. Yeah, and I guess mixed in probably with that fear of, well, it could be a bacterial infection, they might get worse. Yeah. And another reason was that they wanted to preserve their relationship with the patient. Mm. So again, as I said, some patients have an expectation that they will get medicine, they will get something to help them, and they won't be satisfied with their care if they don't get this. So this could be contributing in some cases. And of these 6,500 prescribers, more than one-third either didn't feel supported to not prescribe unnecessary antibiotics mm-hmm. or were undecided on whether they felt supported. In other words, a third did not clearly feel supported to not prescribe mm-hmm. antibiotics when they felt antibiotics were unnecessary. Okay. So that's really interesting. Yeah, it's really important to get this insight, isn't it? Absolutely. So... As I said, they're the findings that really stood out to me and I think it really highlights that in terms of their healthcare workers' knowledge, while it's not perfect, overall their knowledge of antibiotics and the use of antibiotics was pretty good. Yeah. There's variation, but in general it's pretty good. Maybe there's a need for a bit more knowledge about antibiotic resistance. Yeah. But they're generally aware of the threat of antibiotic resistance. But... Knowledge isn't enough to change behaviour. And there are other ways in which healthcare workers need to be supported to stop using antibiotics when it's not necessary, like having the time and resources to have those conversations and more public awareness, as I said, because really we all have a role to play in this. Patients, health services, governments and healthcare workers. 
Now, just very quickly, one strategy that they mention in this paper to help with this problem and something that does reduce antibiotic use is a delayed prescription. So this is where, say, your GP gives you a prescription for antibiotics, but they ask you not to start actually taking them until a certain, say, number of days or if you don't improve Uh or unless you get sicker. Yeah. So it's a wait-and-see approach. But patients who really want antibiotics still feel satisfied that they have their prescription in their back pocket. That's good. And the authors talk about the UK's Antibiotic Guardian campaign. And in that, the doctors are encouraged to make pledges. One of these pledges is, the next time I'm thinking about prescribing antibiotics for an infection that's probably going to go away on its own, and the patient is adamant that they want antibiotics, Mm -hmm. then I will use this delayed prescription. Right. Yeah, so that's one strategy. And I guess the general community needs to be receptive to that, though. And that's where, like I said, more public awareness about the dangers of unnecessary Mm -hmm. antibiotic use is really important. Mm -hmm. So I hope that we've done a little bit of that in this episode. Mm. Okay, so now for something completely different. As I said, we're always going to have a bit of fun in our podcast. Yes. And this is probably our favourite part where we go through what brought out our inner square recently. And Janine, I think I'm going to go first because you always go first and I'm (laughs) sick of it. I do. Yes. Okay, fair enough. (laughs) Okay, so mine, this was a no-brainer for me. The If I Fits, I Sits study was published recently and it blew up on Twitter. Oh, yes. And if you didn't see, this is a study looking at cats' fondness for sitting in enclosed box-like spaces like (laughs) your laundry basket, inside a cupboard, and even just sitting on top of flat objects or shapes on the ground. Mm. Now, Gabriella Smith, who is an animal cognition researcher in Boston, did a study around this phenomenon, but taking it further to see if cats would also be attracted to an illusory box. Yeah. (laughs) Now, this is called the Kinesia illusion. Now, come with me on this because I'm going to try and describe it in words. So basically, you have four circle-shaped pieces of paper and you cut out one quarter piece from each. So they kind of look like a Pac-Man with a really big mouth. (laughs) Yes, And you arrange them on the floor as four corners of a square with the missing quarter piece facing the inside of the square in such a way that it gives the impression of the contours of a square, but it's not really a square. Yeah. It's just the illusion of a square. Okay. So were cats still drawn to sit in this illusory square? They were. Oh, so interesting. (laughs) It's super fascinating and clearly it was a huge hit on Twitter among cat lovers like me. (laughs) And so my inner square moment, which is ongoing really, is me trying this out at home with my cat Mishka and I'm so proud of her for doing some science with me. She's been a very good sport. <laughs> She's tried out a few variations on the test. And will <laughs> pop up some links on the website for you to have a look at all of this content. And thanks to Gabriella Smith for liking my tweet. Uh... <laughs> so if this stuff interests you, you can follow Gabriella on Twitter on the handle at 
Explanimals. And the group that Gabriella works in, I believe, has a new project looking at what cats and dogs can see. So maybe you want to get involved with that. So is this, is there some citizen science going on where they're this was engaging with the community paper. to actually do this in their homes? That's so That's cool. That's right. So this study was done with citizens during the pandemic, during the lockdown, I guess, during the height of the lockdown. And it's a really great methodology and really gets the public involved in science. Yeah. Who doesn't want to do science with their cat? Totally. And I was wondering <laughs> how often Mishka does sit in the illusory square. Well, the first one I made for her, she went directly to it as soon as I wow. finished putting it together. So clearly she was quite compelled. It's so funny. It is funny. And I know I've every time I visit much. you and have a shopping bag of sorts that gets left on the ground, she always has to go into it. <laughs> Absolutely. She just has to do it. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, it's so funny. I'm not sure if I'm proud or embarrassed to say that the tweet of Mishka sitting in a square is our most popular tweet on Twitter from the Sister <laughs> Doctor Squared account. <laughs> Nothing to do with our podcast, but very important for science That's and right. squares the world over. Very good. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All right. So, Janine, can you top that? <laughs> So, well, look, I want to talk about the kiwi fruit pirate. <laughs> the kiwi fruit pirate. Did you see this story, Alina? Do you know what I'm talking about? No. Okay. So this was a news story recently on ABC in Australia that, of course, piqued my interest. So a little bit of backstory before I explain what kiwi fruit... Of course, the kiwi there's fruit... always a backstory. I need to have my appropriate preamble time. So the, the kiwi fruit originally evolved in China... And they were known originally as gooseberries, right? Okay. And at some point they made their way to New Zealand where they held some sort of pole and decided to name them after their animal mascot, the kiwi, the little bird, the kiwi, right? So that's why they're called kiwi fruit, which I didn't know until I started no, I didn't getting know that my either. square Thank on. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then New Zealand developed the golden variety of kiwi. So there's the green version or then there's this gold version. Do you have a preference, Alina? Oh, they're both good, but I I think the golden ones are really pretty. I like them both, but I actually tend to prefer the green. But anyway, that's a tangent. Okay, traditionalist. So, <laughs> so um, now, look, this news story was about a man from China who has gotten his hands on some of the golden kiwi cuttings from New Zealand and taken them back to China where he has been accused of cultivating counterfeit plants. <laughs> <laughs> because Zespri is the company that technically owns the rights to the golden kiwi. Oh, and gosh. I am not joking. It literally said they hired private investigators to go to China and check out the kiwi orchard. And this guy, the kiwi fruit pirate, has been found guilty of taking these cuttings and has had to pay $15 million in damages, which he is oh currently appealing. But there are already 5,000 or more than 5,000 hectares of golden kiwis growing in China already because he's been selling it to all these people. And so, wow. I mean, of course this brought out my inner square. There were so many facets to this story. And so you read about this for a few hours, didn't you? I did. So obviously I've done a deep dive into the history of the kiwi fruit. That's how I now know why they're called kiwi fruit. 
I even found an article from Time magazine, I'll pop it up on the website, that said there is really no definitive record of how this fruit got to New Zealand initially. The consensus in New Zealand history books is that a New Zealand principal brought them back from China in 1904. And when they held the poll, there was one idea was to call them melonettes, which just sounds so wrong now that they're just kiwi fruit, right? But anyway, I can't relate to that. <laughs> but so I just I just had so many questions and very few of them have been answered. So one of my questions is, isn't New Zealand the original pirate because it originally was from China? <laughs> my first question. My second question is, I just started thinking, hang on, I have a lot of random plants that will pop up in my compost heap. And if a golden kiwi grew in my compost heap, am I a kiwi pirate too? Hmm. You ask the hard questions. <laughs> I mean, I would hope I'm not going to be sued if I'm I not think trying you need to, to stop and take a good long hard look at yourself. <laughs> well, surely if I'm not if it's unintentional and I'm not involved in some sort of commercial enterprise, I'm not going to be sued by Zespri. <laughs> I don't know. Do we have any we have any listeners who are into Fruit law? Well, look, this is what I tried to look up. The search terms I was using was intellectual property and fruit. And, <laughs> and look, I found some interesting things, but I didn't find a definitive answer to if something was to grow in my yard because of an unintentional reason, could I potentially get in any trouble if some other random company happens to own the rights to that particular variety? But you're not cultivating it and then selling it on and making an income from it. But, you know, how, that could happen in future through someone. I don't know. So many questions, Lena, so many questions. Well, if anyone has any insight, <laughs> please feel free to get in touch. And Janine, in the meantime, you can continue to take a good, long, hard look at yourself <laughs> about how you manage your fruit waste and the unintended consequences <laughs> of it. Uh. So I hope everyone has learned something about antibiotic resistance as well as the dangers of accidental <laughs> fruit co-optation. <laughs> accidental fruit piracy. <laughs> yes, and don't mess with New Zealanders and their fruit. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. So thanks for joining us today. The details for the studies we've talked about will be available on our website, which is www.sister.squared.com with all words spelt in full. And you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook and make sure you go and look at Mishka's very world-famous tweet. We'd really love to connect <laughs> with you. And thanks for joining us. Thanks very much, everybody. Have a good one. Bye. Don't take antibiotics unless you really need to. Bye. <laughs>